really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. Uh, interesting that uh, that particular soundbite uh, ends on healing and talks about healing. That's uh, going to be the topic of our discussion coming up here in the first half of Buffalo What's Next. I want to tell you about what's coming up in part two. Uh, Dave Debo is going to talk uh, with uh, Kevin Gaughan, activist and local attorney, putting together a food equity conference in October to talk about Many of the issues that we've seen uh, in Buffalo's east side here most certainly have been exposed and highlighted in the last four months. But right now we want to talk about the healing that has been going on that probably needs to continue to go on in Buffalo's east side. And with us, Kelly Whitfield, the founder of Healing Hub of uh, New York and executive director. Well, Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, Kelly, we've heard different people talk about the, the healing and how important it is for the community. But can you as best you can, because I know you've spent a lot of time on the ground in and around that neighborhood. What is the state right now? Can you can you sum it up as as you understand from people that you've talked to? What what what's the the emotional state right now of that neighborhood? So um, the Healing Hub does four food giveaways, and two of our food giveaways are in that neighborhood a week. One on Maine and Utica, and one on Jefferson. Um, And what we do is we sit and we actively listen to the people that come to our food giveaways. Um, The state, the mental state in that community um, is kind of a frozen state, kind of um, survivor mode, right? Fight or flight, right? Um, Some of our clients that actually were in the shooting, right, were in tops, um, feel like they haven't even processed or healed from the unaddressed trauma before that happened in that community, right? And now they're trying to um, figure out what their next step is um, and and, in, in this healing process, right? Where do they feel safe? Where do they feel safe to come to, to talk about kind of how they feel, what's going on, um, confusement too. You know, it is interesting. We've talked to other uh, groups, uh, including Best Self. Yes. Uh, they've really done remarkable work and outreach, mm-hmm. it, but it is interesting how much that is needed, that the emotional support, the you know mental health support, yeah. uh, that's something that, you know, it, it's, like I said, it's come to light for me regarding that neighborhood in the last few months, but it seems that it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. No. Would you agree? I definitely agree. There's a stigma, right, to talk about mental health. Right. There's a stigma. Our society gives a stigma and independent families. Right. Um, Kind of condition um, the children that what goes in the house stays in the house, Mm. Um, especially in the black community. Um, There's a distrust. Right. Because if we talk about what's going on in our families, someone might come and take our kids. 
right? Something bad might happen. A consequence might happen if we talk about what's going on in our homes. So we stay sick. We stay stuck. We stay broken, right? So um, there's definitely a stigma, and that causes one of the biggest barriers, that and the fear of being judged, right? So um, I know that it kept me out there, um, and I know from talking with people out there that that's what keeps them out there as well. Your backstory is is very compelling, and I do want, want to touch upon it because I think it'll be instructive to this conversation, but I don't want to focus on that just yet. I mm-hmm. want to stay with Healing Hub and what you're of trying course. to to, uh, to accomplish here. You, you say you're out there, you're giving out you have food giveaways. That's obviously yes. a great, great way to bring people in. What about when they do come to you? Can you talk about that interaction? And obviously you don't want to be over the top, tell me your problems, but yet you're most certainly hearing some really inner thoughts from people. So the Healing Hub's mission is we create a safe space for anyone to heal from unaddressed trauma, right? We create that safe space by creating a judgment-free space, right? And by doing that, we have a lot of the people that are out there, boots on the ground. These people have been through the fire themselves, which makes it more welcoming for people to share their truths, right? So um, like a peer healing, right? So uh, when people come up to our tables, um, first of all, um, we give lunches out that already have writing on them. I see you, you're heard, you're amazing, you're special. Because in Maine and Utica, you've got like a triangle of trauma, right? You've got your methadone clinic, right there. You've got the v, uh, there's a VA clinic there and you've got a mental health clinic there, right? And uh, there's a lot of drug activity. There's some prostitution. There's a lot of overdosing that's going on over there. And, um, you know, people don't feel seen, they don't feel heard, and they definitely don't feel loved, right? So when they come into this welcoming, loving space, wherever we go, we offer it in, in a hub as well, but wherever they go, this is, this is the kind of space that we create. People seem to just come and drop their truth, right? It's amazing. It's miraculous, right? And when they drop their truth, that's when they can start healing from their truth, right? And that's when we can provide services. If we can't provide a service someone needs to empower them to take that next step to healing, we're going to find someone that can. So we don't just bring food to these food giveaways. We bring clothes. We bring hygiene products. Anything our community needs, we're going to find it and we're going to bring it. For an example, um, we we um, serve the homeless community on Saturdays, right? There's a lot of recovery and addiction, a lot of brokenness, a lot of trauma down there. So when we go um, down there, like blankets are needed and things like that. I was just there last Saturday, and a woman who has been homeless for 20 years has finally found housing, right? And she's, like, super excited. Mm. And so this is what we do. Right. This is just what we do. It, it, it's no it's nothing's too big. Nothing's too small. We're going to find a way to help service our community without uh, breaking confidence too much. Can you generalize about some of the things that you hear? Mm. Well, um, it's interesting because I hear different things at different locations. Right. So with the homeless community, I hear a lot of the people in the homeless community want to stay out there because they don't want to be in a judgmental society. They just don't. They would rather stay homeless than to to do that, right? They would rather stay homeless and they have built their own community within each other where they trust each other, 
right? And and they're kind of their own family. So we hear a lot of that downtown on Saturdays. On Fridays, um, just a lot of um, people are looking for a lot of hope to stop using. Um, it's riddled with addiction on Maine and Utica, right? So just a lot of hope to stop using. Um, they feel like they've been forgotten about on Jefferson, Okay, um, a lot of uh, uh, survivors from the mass shooting feel like um, once the cameras have left and all the big organizations have left out the way, they feel like they're vulnerable, left out there, and they don't even know what to do. I have one client, and she says it all the time. She's like, I don't care about compensation. I don't care about anything. Who's going to help my mental health for years? Who's going to be there so I don't bleed on my children? I can't even leave my house to go to work. And if I can't work, I don't have money. If I don't have money, I'm homeless. And she talks about this is not even the trauma she's had to deal with for the 30 years she's already been living. Right. So it's now become layers and layers and layers of trauma like an onion. Right. Just layers and layers. So it's interesting to, to hear those those types of uh, of. um stories your your group is basically your volunteers we all we volunteer yes and you know these are counselors yes. teachers artists that's right talk about how they go about their business oh it's it's amazing so we do have um counselors on the board that actually have private practices but they still they know the urgency, and they know that a lot of our clients, a lot of our community don't even have insurance, right? So how are we going to provide them with the mental health healing that they need, right? We have to do a grassroots type of thing. Even before, like the mass shooting, we offered a safe haven, like like you talked about, through art, through music, through doulas, because racism is obviously um trauma, right? And we know that, you know, women are three times more likely to die giving childbirth being a black woman, right, than a white woman. So we do have black women doulas who who are women's voices, right? Um, we have um, uh, writing workshops and how to command your morning workshops. And then, you know, we have, you know, uh, restorative healing um, circles that we offer. So we all know that we didn't get traumatized the same. We're not going to heal the same. So that's why we offer that variety. And our board is made up of a variety of people as well, right? And all the healers. So we have a board and we have the healers and then we have coordinators and we have the food drive coordinators as well. So it's it's a lot of pieces, moving pieces to, to the organization. But um, the board members are very passionate about um, the healing that needs to be seen in the community. Um, we have one board member, and I can say her name, Felicia Stanley. She's amazing. Um, she's a therapist. She worked for Best Self. She was boots on the ground there offering free counseling. You know, Felicia is amazing. She has her own organization, No Wound Untreated, and we're collaborating those two organizations because we're so parallel. But she was there Monday through Sunday on Jefferson. Mm. Right. Or at the resource council every day, every day, plus her job, plus her paying job. So um, our, our board's made up of people like that. We're talking with uh, Kelly Whitfield. She is the founder and executive director of Healing Hub. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about here. That is for sure. We're glad to have you with us on uh, Buffalo. What's next? Uh, I, I appreciate you sharing with me 
what you are hearing and, and doing a good job of not breaking confidence. What about success stories? Because like you said, everybody heals at a different pace, a different time frame. What about successes that you've seen? What can you share? We have so many success stories, and we blast them all over social media. There <laughs> so we go. Come on. <laughs> I guess I just, just, I mean, we just have one of our clients in um, downtown finding housing after 20 right. years. That's great. Just yeah. from being empowered, right? Like, we had a teenager um, who was transitioning right from female to male and um being bullied and things like that and found their power through music and private guitar lessons right um we had um and now this teenager is able to use their voice right um we've had um people who have been um survivors of the mass shooting who have been homeless because of that trauma now have housing right um we have um People who have healed from art or healed through art so empowered that now they're teaching workshops to other people. They're teaching art workshops to other people, right? Um, we've serviced about 19,000 uh, people just through food, just through the food giveaways, right? So now, even through like the workshops and things like that, um, we have definitely empowered a number of, of clients to start their healing journey, whether it be going into a facility. Right. Um, to start or whether it be um, housing or whether it be going to counseling um, and and staying in counseling. Um, it's 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 a lot. People have been clothed, fed. It's just miraculous to see. It really is. And cycles have been broken. Cycles have been broken. You know, let's talk about cycles a little bit because we, yeah. we touched on something you said before we were on the air. And I want to try to get back to it because it, it was such a fascinating perspective. I've had people sit in the very chair that you're black professionals, people with advanced degrees saying, talking about the stress of being black in America on a daily basis. But you brought up something about unchecked trauma that is getting passed on from generation to generation. Expand on that, please. That's right. So you've got generational trauma, but you've got generational trauma that kind of stays in your cells, right? Trauma stays stays in our cells and it's passed by it's passed on so i kind of um it's passed on and we talked about um environmental and it's also passed on through um uh you know just birth right um i i talked about you know a, a white grandma right and a black grandma somebody's white grandmother was watching lynchings eating popcorn right somebody's black grandma was getting raped by five police officers right and 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 passing that trauma down onto her family so it's like it's 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 really you know it's passed on we don't talk about that trauma that's held in ourselves right we don't talk about that trauma that kind of has us living fight or flight in survivor mode on a daily basis and then after we're born the traumas that are poured on after that, right? So it's just layer and layer, um, layers of trauma that we don't address. And if you don't address this trauma as a child, it's going to manifest into something different as an adult, you know, and it's going to be really, it's, it is, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to find and to heal and to understand your triggers and trauma and things like that. So we need to talk about it more. Um, and we talked about um, that it's not spoken about because of the stigma. And also the idea that it's almost 
become ingrained to a certain extent, culturally ingrained mm-hmm. inside black Americans to just that push uh, it we down. Can't, we can't talk about it. Yeah. One of the one of the things that are passed through is our resilience. Right. Which, All the way which from is slavery. A, which is, of course, something to be hailed for that, sure. That's right. That's right. But we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to be so resilient. Do you know what I mean? That's it. That's that's the whole problem. Right. right? We should have a fair chance. Right. Because we're already born into trauma. I was born into trauma. You know, um, it's, it's just like a setup. You know, and then we're and then everybody's kind of expected to learn the same in school and then be these successful people. It's really hard to be successful when you're living every day in fight or flight, when you're living every day in survivor mode. You don't plan for a future. You just plan to get through the next day. It's different. Right. It is. Kelly Whitfield with us this morning on Buffalo. What's next? Um. You're kind enough to to share some of your personal story before, and you most certainly have uh, been gracious enough to to discuss it to a certain extent. And I'll I'll let you go as far as you want to go, but it's interesting we how you grew up in a, in a rural community um, where you know you were subjected to racial slurs that you didn't even really understand were racial slurs. That's right. That's that's right. That's, that's an amazing reality. I was conditioned not to make waves. So I'll back up. I was actually, I was brought up in Fredonia. So um, Fredonia is a rural white community. Um, But I was adopted by two pedophiles Mm. um, who have adopted and fostered other black and brown children um, and abused them. I just happened to be the one that was kind of conditioned, right? Because if I was this perfect little girl, then nobody would think what they were doing on the inside of the house is what they were doing, right? So I was kind of like, um, you know, I was conditioned to always smile, right? (laughs) To be resilient, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) To smile, um, to be polite, to always have manners. I was put in a different dress every day, and I was put through everything you can think of, whether it be Girl Scouts, swimming. Everybody else in the house didn't get the same treatment. They were beaten, used as slaves. Um, My little brother who was adopted, he was beaten like every day, right? Um, I got that treatment because they needed somebody. They needed a scapegoat, right? So, um, and as, you excelled. You excelled in ex- school. Well, it's interesting because I did. I I, I was a good student. I, I was a flute player. I, I was a, a a county champion swimmer. Um, but people don't know how broken I was on the inside. Uh, people don't know that in middle school I was putting guns in my mouth. People don't know in high school I was bulimic. Right. Um, I just needed something to cope with what I didn't understand. I hated myself. I hated myself for someone who smiled so much and was so happy. I hated my insides. I didn't understand why I was so broken. And I went through life like that. Right. Because I just didn't have any understanding. And because I didn't understand, I had no gut. I had no boundaries. And my body was used to being abuse. So when I tell you ourselves, remember they do. My brain didn't remember the details of the sexual abuse, but my body never forgot. So if a man came up behind me, you know, when I jumped, that's a trigger. 
right? And not understanding why, not understanding why I have this anxiety, why I have these these thoughts in my head, why I have flashbacks, why am I so fight or flight, right? So um, when uh, I, I found my escape through swimming and I, I became really good at it and I was so good at it and it was, was going to take me out of that environment. I was so excited. Um, I was really controlled by the people who adopted me. So there's only certain places I could go to college, but I was going to go as far away <laughs> as I could. And that was Iona. Mm-hmm. I got a full swimming scholarship to Iona. I couldn't wait. The summer before going to Iona, a car hit me going 70 miles per hour. I was going 55 head on. I used to work at Chautauqua Institute at an art gallery. And um, I looked down and both my femurs were cracked. And this part of my leg was in this seat. And this part of my leg was up here on the door. And my ankle was underneath the car floor. And my tibias were crushed. My stomach was ripped open. My nose was ripped off my face. My lung was collapsed. And I was awake for the whole thing. (laughs) Um, The steering wheel had taken my... I mean, the engine was in my lap. Um, And I was mercy flown to ECMC by the Buffalo Bills helicopter who practiced in Fredonia at the time. This was 1996. Mm. And... um, I thought that I was paralyzed. So I remember saying to the witness who happened to be a priest, (laughs) (laughs) he came to the window and I was swearing at him. I'm like, leave me on the side of the road because I can't feel my legs. These legs were going to take me away. Right. And I can't feel. I said, leave me on on the side of the road. Um, I said some swear words, but I apologize later. Um, but, <laughs> but I was, I was, I was mercy flown to ECMC. And I remember I was an athlete. I never did a drug. I never, I wouldn't even take aspirin. I remember in eighth grade, Mr. Tate said aspirin was going to cause stomach bleeds. Wouldn't even take an aspirin. Right. So the first drug they give me, I'm in intensive care, life support, ECMC. They're putting me all together. I have rods in my legs now, bolts in my hips, pins in my tibias, plates in my ankles. So they're putting me back together, 55 staples, all that good jazz. And they give me the morphine drip. And I have all this unaddressed trauma. And now I've got a morphine drip, <laughs> you know. And I and I say, you know, because I, I used to speak in the rooms of NA, Necrotic Synonymous, I say all the time, like, I overdosed the first time I used. That qualifies me to be <laughs> to sit here, you know, because I kept pushing that the button, and my ma- my machine wasn't set up, so I overdosed. They had to use the paddles to bring me back, right? But what I remember is the feeling of that drug, and remembering it's taking me away from all my problems. Like it's helping me cope emotionally, and from there, an addict was born, for sure. For sure. So, um, and the doctors were prescribing me this medication. So I had no understanding. I never even seen a street drug before this, right? So I had no understanding what addiction was. No one told me about trauma. Everybody knew I had trauma, but nobody's talking about it because we don't talk about it. You be happy and you smile. You be grateful. Grateful, right? So, um, an addict was born and and, um, I went from there to, I tried to, you know, take my degree. I went to college in a wheelchair. Hmm. Learned how to walk again. Well, because the the abuser took my credits and, and again, I have to be perfect. So I went to college that fall in an electric wheelchair. And I learned how to walk and everything again. And I got with an abusive guy and um, he used to beat me and things like that. But again, I didn't understand because that's all I knew was abuse. Even though I didn't get physically abused, abuse is all my body knows. Right. It doesn't know either. I don't have red flags. I don't have a gut. Right. So people have have violated my boundaries. I I don't know any different. 
right? So um, I take him down south. I go to North Carolina and take him down south with me. And um, I get pregnant down there. Um, and he puts me in a bathtub and beats that baby out of me because a guy looked at me. I was teaching fourth grade. And um, I had a stillborn in a really, really, really racist hospital. Um, so I got to experience that where they, they do think black women can handle more pain. They do. They left me on the floor bleeding and screaming while they were taking other people back there. And I was like, what, 21, 22, scared, right? I was losing my baby Jordan. And um, they finally took me back. They told me to stop screaming that I was bothering the other patients. They told me to be quiet, right? Um, and then after I passed my child, they threw him in a garbage can. I didn't know my rights. I didn't, I didn't have a voice. I was getting submerged under trauma. So what do I do? Use more, right? Because that's how, now I'm starting to learn that's how I'm going to cope, is I'm going to use drugs. And when I went to my first rehab for that in, in Jamestown, I came back up north. I realized I'm, I'm not manageable. I'm only on pain pills. When I went up to my first rehab in Jamestown, and nobody talked about trauma. We're only talking about drugs. And you put a bunch of broken people in one room. That's not productive, right? Because we're going to talk. We're going to talk about all our brokenness and how drugs are helping us. And because I don't know about addiction, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand I'm using drugs to cope with my feelings. I'm going to compare myself right out of this rehab. I'm nothing like any of you. And I left with a guy <laughs> who smoked crack. And I and and it's my favorite line. I went from being a teacher, you know, in the classroom to a student in the crack house overnight. Literally. Never saw a street drug and was introduced crack. And because I just wanted to cope with how I was feeling, I was doing it. So for years, for maybe two to three years, I was trying to kill myself with drugs. I was doing about 70 lower tabs, you know, two, two eight balls of, of crack, heroin on top of the same pipe. Um I, I was literally trying to kill myself. I wasn't using to have fun. Now I lost everything. I lost my teaching job. I lost my, my identity as a swimmer. I lost my identity as a person. I, I lost my child. I lost everything. There was no reason for me to live. And I'm broken. I don't even want to hate myself anyways. I'm broken. So I stayed out there. And what kept me out there is the fear of being judged, right? I didn't feel safe enough to talk about anything that I was feeling going through. Kelly Whitfield, um, you know, we're coming up to our final minutes. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to give the condensed version of your recovery. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to just maybe just leave it right there. Other okay. than to say that you were able to oh, yes. go drug free. Oh, yeah. For years, I have a beautiful family now, right? I got pregnant with Cameron. He's my 17-year-old son. And that's what gave me purpose. And Healing Hub. And the Healing Hub. So even after I put the drug down, it didn't mean that I was healed. It wasn't until I got my memory back, got empowered, confronted my abusers. And that's when I started the Healing Hub because I realized I'm not alone. There are more people out there. Right. And when it comes to Healing Hub, what's next for you and for this community? What's next is we, we had a building in Amherst. It's a 5,000 square foot building. It was right next door to a methadone clinic. We're trying to move into a building on Main Street to be able to provide all this wonderful healing right in the heart of where it needs to be, right? Right in the community that we serve with our food giveaways, community that we sit with every day. So um, 
that's what's next. We're trying to do that. Um, and once we get this building, we'll be able to provide. And other organizations can come in this building. It'll be like a hub, like a, a hub for healing. Right. Um, and we'll work together with other organizations to provide what the community needs, what the community deserves. You know, you may have taken the, the answer to that question right out. But uh, this is a this is a Dave Debo, my partner uh, here on the show, asked this question. What does the community need? The community needs healing, period, because I don't care how many degrees you have or how awesome you are. It's really hard to live life if you have unaddressed trauma. There's a lot of unaddressed trauma out there, of course, some of it lingering from May 14th. Yes. As we've talked about generational, um, do you have hope? I have so much hope. Hmm. Oh, my gosh. If you see me out there, you'll see me running around dancing. Everybody knows I dance when I walk because if I can heal, (laughs) is somebody like me? Can heal is broken for 40 years. If I can heal, anybody can heal. Anybody. Guarantee anybody can heal. How can uh, somebody help out Healing Hub? Is there a way? Yes, we we are always taking volunteers um, for definitely our food giveaways, people to lead different workshops and areas. Come visit our website at www.healinghubny.org or you can call 716-697-4744 if you have any questions or email us at healinghub ny at gmail.com. <laughs> and, and I can I can assure you, Kelly, if uh, if everybody who's listening is like me, we've got a lot of questions, but uh, okay. we, we only have so much time to get to it. Uh, Kelly yeah. Whitfield of Healing Hub, thanks very much for being with us on Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed myself. <laughs> Coming up next, Dave Debo talks with Kevin Gaughan. This is Buffalo What's Next. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy central and western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to wned.org vehicles. Funding for the WBFO's News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. Watch the WNED PBS original production, If Our Water Could Talk. Buffalo would not be here if it weren't for the water. Our water defined our history, and it will define our future. Everybody's got a new hope for Buffalo, and it's all about water. If Our Water Could Talk, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Buffalo What's Next. Good morning. I'm Dave Debo. And with me for the next half hour here is Kevin Gaughan, civic activist, attorney. 
You might remember him from his efforts to uh, try to have regionalized government, a big conference at Chautauqua Institution all those years ago. He has another big conference coming up and one that is especially relevant to the discussion here after the shootings on May 14th. We're going to talk a little bit about food inequity today and a big conference that Kevin has bringing in some national experts to try and really change the conversation here. Kevin, thanks for coming by. It's an honor to be here with you, David. Thank you. Quite a list of participants. I mean, this isn't just a few community members who say, yeah, we have a food desert. The uh, Well, first and foremost, in, as you say, in the aftermath of the, uh, of the brutal, uh, inhumane, and racist attack that took place in East Buffalo at the beginning of the summer, uh, like every Buffalonian and indeed every American, uh, in my grief, um, I was um, well. I, I, I was acquainted with two of the victims, uh, uh, the uh, as so many of us here in sure. Buffalo were, and um, and I couldn't get out of my head, you know, the the, the irretrievable loss of all those dreams, and and uh, the um, and of course the enormous discussion about uh, food inequity and uh, the fact that there was just one supermarket on the east side uh, in our city. Uh, the um, and I was struck by that, um, and I remember thinking to myself, um, if the High Court of History looked back on the tragedy and the immense discussion and re- re- reawakening and refocus of us and the nation on on uh, food justice, uh, and we did nothing, uh, I think we would have been uh, judged harshly. So I thought something, some some good should emerge from this unspeakable sorrow. I did some research. Uh, the uh, about food inequity. Of course, we all sort of uh, knew about it a little bit, but I did not know the extent. Uh, the um, and here's what I learned: almost 30 million Americans live with little or no access to fresh food and vegetables, and of course that speaks to health and nutrition. And when you say 20, 30 million Americans, that's that's children. Uh, the um, and um, um, and of course it, in the context in which we work here in Buffalo is, as we all know, and and this program has highlighted so uh, wonderfully, uh, we're the fourth most impoverished city in America. And we're among the most segregated cities in America. So this large population, more than 70, 75,000 in East Buffalo, um, with just one supermarket, and then just over the urban boundary in, in uh, Chictawaga, there's about the same amount of people with 10 supermarkets. Uh, the um, And so, uh, you've done the math, I'm certain, haven't you? <laughs> that, by that you mean? Looking at how many supermarkets there are in uh, Chictawaga a- a- compared to the amount in Buffalo. That's exactly right. Wow. Uh, the... Um, um, so, um, and then, uh, as you kindly uh, referred to, uh, I did what I've always done in, in these uh, small, modest efforts, uh, uh, something my father taught me, which is you have to truly understand something. You have to find those, those folks who have devoted their lives to it. So I spent most of June and, and part of July traveling the country, and, and of course I found an immense, immense amount of scholars, um, experts, educators, and most important practitioners, uh, folks who have devoted their lives to this issue, because here, here's the three things I've learned. Um, first and foremost, food inequity and food injustice is in America existed long before uh, the the uh, tragedy here in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the secondly, those black citizens and leaders here in East Buffalo have um, strived mightily for years to find solutions to this problem, and they've made great progress. Third, I learned all they need is resources. So I, the idea I got was, what if we could get in one room those great black leaders in our city, in the East Side, who understand this issue. Uh, most deeply, and those with uh, women and men with the resources to perhaps um, make um, not one-off, you know, not uh, uh, um, a, a, a temporary investment, but long-term sustainable investments to get to the bottom of this issue. And in that regard, this is an interesting project. You have about 13 different people coming in for the summit. 
uh, at least 13 guests that are confirmed and several others that you've invited. And it's a conference of national stature. When the shootings happened, I think people said racism is not a Buffalo problem, but it's a problem in Buffalo. Similarly, food inequity is not necessarily a Buffalo problem, but certainly a problem in Buffalo. You're looking at it kind of from a national perspective. Yes, sir. And uh, the what I've learned... Uh, the uh, again from these black voices, and by the way, as you mentioned, this conference is going to be led by black and brown voices, including uh, you have the president of Morehouse College, David Thomas, is one of your co-chairs. Uh, the uh, Morehouse College, one of our nation's most historically significant black uh, colleges, and I came across him because in the aftermath of the Buffalo shooting, he wrote these beautiful and very poignant uh, uh, blog posts about uh, not only uh, gun violence and minority communities. Uh, the uh, but uh, but food equity as well, and then we also have and we're honored to have Rita Hubbard Robinson, who's mm-hmm. perhaps uh, Buffalo's leading voice in uh, food access. Uh, the um, uh, uh, so I, they're they're going to be in charge of uh, of the discussion. Uh, the um, and as you say, what I'm really trying to do is um, find as many folks, both with the resources, uh, investors, finance people, banks and other national experts and get them in the room so that they can see what Buffalo has done already. Uh, the, um, in effect, what this conference is attempting to do is it's time now for this nation to address this inequity. And by the way, of course, food inequity is just sort of a portal to the massive disinvestment mm. uh, that uh, um, took place in communities like East Buffalo. Uh, just uh, looking at the WBFO survey that you did months ago and one of your fine reporters, Mr. O'Neill White, uh, the um, uh, we all learned again dramatically about these attitudes that resulted. We all can remember the shameful practice of uh, banks and institutions uh, making some maps that said invest here but don't mm-hmm. invest there. And of course, th- so food inequity is an outcome of that. Uh, the um, so it just seems to me that um, uh, now that um, people, more and more people like myself, are recognizing that food access it's a civil right, it's a human right, and it's now time to redress it. And I thought, what if Buffalo led the way. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, uh, too, uh, the Philadelphia story is really more than a movie with uh, uh, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> there are a lot of initiatives in Philadelphia that you're bringing here to talk about. I, uh, tell me about the Philadelphia story and what we might be able to possibly learn from them. Right. So the way we're going to try to uh, structure our conference is, first we'll have some national presenters, and that will include, um, uh, I found this magnificent entity this uh, uh, um, uh, called the Food Trust in Philadelphia, which also has a, uh, a severe problem uh, in this regard. And uh, the, uh, they're going to be represented, uh, and they're going to come and, and sort of give the national perspective. Mm-hmm. In addition, of course, uh, uh, the um, I was surprised and pleased to learn there's also financial entities that have been formed in the country over these past uh, decades to um, raise funds and capital to create new sort of business models. Again, this is a very complex issue and problem. And speaking to the ones who understand it the most, people like Alexander Wright, who founded mm-hmm. our African Heritage Food Co-op, and Al- Allison DeHoney. Who uh, is Rebecca, trying to do a Grow Green project over there. That's right, right yeah. Right. The uh, CEO of Fruits and Veggies and uh, and Rebecca Williams and, of course, uh, um, uh, Rita. Uh, the, um, the answer is not just supermarkets. The answer, of course, is also local grocery stores, farms, hydroponics. In other words, there's several components that have to be um, placed in a community in a neighborhood in which that type of investment heretofore hasn't happened, which is just so shameful. 
Uh, the um, So again, I'm hoping that um, in addition to these national presenters, we'll also have someone from the Reinvestment Fund in Philadelphia, again, which is an entity that raises fund and ca- funds and capital to assist people like uh, like Allison and uh, Alex. Uh, the um, And then, of course, we uh, I had to talk my way into these financial institutions, uh, and I take a measure of pride in doing it on behalf of my community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Bank of America, Ted Janicki, who's president of Bank of America here in Buffalo, he, he's going to be there. Uh, the um, a, an acquaintance, a, lo- a longtime acquaintance of mine, uh, John Thornton, who's former president of Goldman Sachs, perhaps our nation's most prestigious investment bank, and also chairman emeritus of the Brookings Institution, which is one of the most progressive think tanks in America. Uh, the uh, He's going to be there as well. You also have on the agenda, and th- this is interesting to me, you have uh, John Pars- Persons from Tops. If this expert, uh, if this effort is successful, Tops could have some competition here, and yet he's still coming to the table to talk about these food equity issues. I didn't know John before undertaking this initiative. And um, when you do something like this, among the great gifts that, that are bestowed on you, are meeting fascinating people and interesting people. And uh, the um, and I called John. Uh, who again I didn't know, and and that wonderful man called right back back straight away. Uh, the um, and of course we all saw the the leadership that he demonstrated in in the aftermath of uh, sort of navigating the tops of matter and the difficult choices that had to be made. But yes, the in addition, I felt the final component of the uh, composition of this conference should be supermarket executives. So we've actually invited the six largest, uh, the CEOs of the six largest supermarket executives in America, and John was the first to say yes. And uh, the, because um, I think he understands like all businessmen, number one, competition's good. Number two, and perhaps much more important, is that um, th- it's th- this problem is no longer something that America uh, should be, uh, uh, Burdened with, and these uh, black and brown and minority people—it's uh, uh, just—it's—it's uh, it's a matter of inequity, and it has to be redressed. What do you picture happening as a result of this conference? The nice speakers, Kevin. Okay, thank you very much, and they, everybody disperses. <laughs> Not necessarily the plan. Having having uh, founded uh, conferences before, I've learned some lessons over the years about uh, proper follow-up. Uh, this is a one-day conference, but its purpose is to give rise to a comprehensive follow-up report. What I you call, want to plan? Yes, sir. Uh, the I should say, more important, these wonderful people again in East Buffalo, these black leaders who have been working so hard, they already have a plan. And the, they're going to be able now for perhaps the first time to show it again with people with the resources. So I, my idea is that um, the conference will uh, – another thing that I learned, of course, is there's a, broad, there's a broad array of views on what the, what the solution is to this, uh, to this problem. They will all be represented at this conference, which, by the way, is taking place on Wednesday, October 12th uh, here in Buffalo. The wonderful developer Douglas Jamal has kindly donated space for us to meet in. Uh, the, um, and um, my view is that – we synthesize and uh, uh, report to the country uh, afterward a, um, um, a f- comprehensive report of what Buffalo is doing and offering as a model, because we're getting closer to, to uh, resolving this. A lot of work and a lot of investment has to take place. Um, but um, again, to uh, offer Buffalo as a model of what, what the, the nation can do and other cities can do, because as you say, this is not a Buffalo problem. Sure. It's an American one. And you spoke a little bit earlier about how um, you'd like to see change. And obviously, there's some inequity here. I don't want to get ahead of the conference, but I want to talk with you specifically about that inequity. Um, it's good if we have a plan to place another supermarket or or to help out um, Alexander Wright or Alison Dahoney. 
all of that's great and good. But what are your thoughts on ways, and I'm, I'm talking more broadly than the conference, what are your thoughts on ways to tackle the inequity? How do we, how do we combat racism? And uh, by the way, we only have 15 minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> David, of course, that's, that's, that's the question. That's, huge. that's the question of the day, yeah. and uh, I should say of the age. And uh, the, um, first and foremost, I think, I think uh, we're all grateful for and excited by uh, the fact that we live in a time now where these difficult questions are perhaps for the first time in our, country, in our nation's history being directly addressed. Uh, the, um, and at times it does take tragedy, unfortunately, and, and uh, uh, whether it be uh, George Floyd or, or, uh, or the top supermarket to um, compel um, we frail human beings to do, to do what's right. Um, and I think your question's excellent because it reminds me, again, one of the initial lessons that I learned, which is in East Buffalo, uh, the injustice with respect to food, access to f healthy food, to um, understanding what food, uh, 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 the role it plays in, in your health and your upbringing and the like, uh, the, um, which has never really happened there. And, and you see it in you know, higher disease rates, diabetes and the mm -hmm. like. And, uh, uh, the, uh, but it's only a portal in this other broad range of lack of access in our minority communities, including East Buffalo, lack of access to education, transportation. Uh, the um, you know, east side of Buffalo, Dr. Samina Raja, who is perhaps one of a, a Western New York's uh, leading uh, uh, researchers and scholars on this, uh, uh, the um, you know she calls um, she uh, she she believes that um, food is infrastructure, mm. uh, the um, and it's a basic infrastructure that's lacking in these disinvested uh, communities such as Western New York. So to answer your to attempt to begin to answer your question, I think in some small way. The way to address it is to do what we're trying to do with the conference, which is begin the conversation on a specific component mm -hmm. of inequity. This happens to be food access. Uh, the um, fully and comprehensively understand it and ed educate it, highlight and bring attention to those folks who understand it in the most deep way through their own experience, and then do what, um, what takes place in every suburb uh, the uh, in every uh, majority community, uh, it's a harsh reality, but it's true, and that is um, have investment, mm. uh, have the bankers say yes, um, and as as Alexander will tell you, the uh, the business models now, uh, there's more than seventy five thousand people in that community, uh, the um, and there is capital there. It may not be as uh, equal to uh, some of our uh, surrounding suburbs, but it's there, and there's business models that can work. And, uh, and, um, and we're going to highlight those at the conference. Kevin Gaughan is here. He's the convener of a national conference on food inequity coming to Buffalo on October 12th, including experts from across the country and uh, people certainly in the community who can talk a little bit about this issue. That's interesting that you say, too, that uh, maybe perhaps the way to address inequity is to address food inequity or possibly have uh, another summit of some sort to address inequity by addressing education inequity. I've talked with uh, Dr. Tim Murphy at UB, head of their Health Equity Institute, about health disparities. And, and that's, in a large part, the approach they're taking. Instead of saying, hey, let's just convene a big talk where everyone says racism is bad, let's pick the specific initiatives where there might be an ability to make some progress. You chose food. Why? 
Well, first and foremost, again, because of the broad and, and large discussion to which the uh, the, the mass shooting uh, um, to, um, gave rise, because it just by by happenstance happened at a supermarket, mm. you know, in large measure, those uh, those ten people who, who 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 lost their lives lost their lives for the simple reason that they were in search of, of fresh food, because uh, Tops was uh, one, right. of, one of the right. sole ones. Uh, the uh, uh, the um, but I I, I I think you you um, again you make you make a good point, which is. Broad discussions, really, um, you know, uh, we, we've we've had a great deal of them, and and uh, you have to have you have to have the right people with the right experience and the right insight, and of course the right expertise. Uh, the um, um, and I, 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 our co-chairman Rita uh, uh, Robinson, I think she she puts it very well. Um, you know, she says really what this is about: um, uh, food and equity and health and and uh, nutrition is, um, along with these, or addressing the other inequities, is creating wealth. Uh, the, um, there's a, there's a, a path that we all have to uh, travel in the course of creating wealth, which is it comes, doesn't come out of anywhere. It comes out of um, the ability to borrow and have access to capital. Uh, the, um, and that's another huge inequity born of the attitudes that were discussed in your WBFO, I should say revealed in your WBFO survey of several mm-hmm. months ago, that still in America, unfortunately, rather sadly, there are attitudes uh, that um, that are reflected in policies. And uh, um, the um, it was interesting in, in, in the initial stages of, uh, of, of uh, crafting the conference, I came across a magnificent woman named Caroline Harries, who's associate program director at, at I was the just Food looking Trust. at that on the agenda here, the idea that there is a group out there called the Food Trust, they are the ones with capital that help these kind of efforts get off the ground. Uh, yes, yeah, well, they're, they're actually more the um, you know the research and understanding. Uh, okay. And, uh, the um, the reinvestment fund ah. uh, is the uh, but they're, they're both. All right, in Philadelphia. I see that one here right. exactly. Uh, the uh, the reinvestment fund in Philadelphia and the Food Trust both in Philadelphia. And in an early discussion with her, I said, uh, you know, I was trying to research uh, uh, food deserts, and and she stopped me and she said, Kevin. Please don't use that phrase. I she know said, what you're going to say. I've yeah, heard it on this program. Yeah, right, Go ahead. Right. Uh, she said, um, uh, I feel that phrase um, suggests that these um, um, inequities resulted um, by nature on their own, but they didn't. They resulted as they were our result of, uh, of specific um, practices, public and private policies that we now know were wrong. And uh, that's why she, she prefers the phrase a grocery gap. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go for one that I've heard Alexander Wright use. I've heard Alison Dahoney use. Uh, they call it outright food apartheid. Um, the um, sometimes words uh, um, have to uh, have to convey um, what uh, what uh, my friend Rita Robinson calls as truth truth telling, and uh, the uh, that phrase certainly does that. And it's interesting too. In order to pull a conference like this together, you kind of have to thread the needle. You can't necessarily be out there screaming and yelling and confrontational, or perhaps a John Parsons from Tops wouldn't appear there. Um, that that's an interesting trick for you. The I, I've learned over the years. Well, first and foremost, in this instance, my role is simply as an ally. Uh, the um, um, my task uh, is to facilitate these relationships between our Buffalo Black leaders, again, who are on the ground making these changes, uh, and the folks with the resources who are going to are kind enough to come here and. Uh, and um, and and listen to them, knowing that they're going to be uh, asked for uh, for uh, resources. Uh, the um, um, and you're right. It uh, it's uh, c- convening is a uh, is a uh, it's, first of all it's a privilege, 
and uh, it's an honor, and um, I'm grateful to God for whispering this idea to me. But, uh, you know, there's a reason why um, uh, people get together, uh, whether it be over a dinner table, uh, at a meeting at the office, or in a conference. And that's because the open and inclusive exchange of ideas, um, even concerning what, what uh, has theretofore appeared as an intractable prob- problem, um, can be solved. And this is a man-made problem, and as a result, it can be solved by man. And that's I was going to ask you that. Do. That was going to be my next question. You think this can be solved? Well, more important, uh, the uh, uh, again, people like Rita and Allison and Alex, they will tell you absolutely, All absolutely. Right. Part, part of the reason I ask it, and uh, forgive me for, for looking a little bit at the record, you convened a, a conference in 97 at Chautauqua on regionalism. Incredibly well-received, but there are still... Uh, six separate school districts in Chictawaga. There is still an Erie County government and all those suburbs. Uh, a couple of years back, I know your your uh, cause was the idea of downsizing the boards of some of these suburban governments. And uh, a few of them tried it. A couple of those who did said, this is not working for us, and re-added uh, people back to a larger original size board. Um, I'm not putting that blame at your feet, but I think it's worth noting that sometimes these things work and sometimes they don't. Uh, absolutely. And uh, the uh, and I'm grateful for the and question. Yet, and yet Rita we'll, says it's solvable. The uh, the uh, We'll take it one, one at a time, and you're kind enough to uh, make reference to uh, past efforts. First and foremost, the regionalism um, um, and regional local government reform um, effort that myself and others undertook uh, the, that, that, that took place at a time when there was absolutely no collaboration, let alone communication among mm. our uh, uh, 25 cities. The uh, idea was not billion. part of the discussion until uh, that the, conference. Uh, the, Correct. Um, and, um, and as a result, you know, for the first time, uh, uh, David, I take a measure of pride. You know, our 25 uh, uh, cities and uh, 16 villages and uh, uh, I should say 25 towns, 16 villages and three cities in the county. We have 45 governments here. Since that conference, they, they, for the first time, started collaborating in purchasing, in service delivery, um, the millions of dollars in property tax savings that we've, we've reaped uh, as a result. I think uh, we take a measure of pride. Secondly, of course, yeah, the, um, you know, the, the research that I did uh, about a decade ago that showed that we have the largest concentration not only of governments but politicians and the downsizing effort, uh, the, um, that took place you know, in the fourth decade of our community and all the resources, by the way, that those suburban politicians were drawing from the inner city. That's why mm. I did it. That's what I was attempting to, to uh, shine a light on in terms of uh, the inequity of, of uh, urban-suburban division. And, uh, the, um, and I look upon that uh, as, a, as a partial success as well because it took place at a time when most Western New Yorkers, you recall, David, when we all thought nothing can change. Nothing can ever change here. Uh, the waterfront lays fallow for 50 years right. and the like. And the little law that I discovered that, that permitted uh, citizens to uh, take a piece of paper, a petition, and uh, you know, force or compel um, referenda about their own government, its size and its nature and its purpose, um, I think that it made local governments um, um, stand up a little straighter, work a little harder, save a little more, and do what every family and every business uh, and every individual has done here in Western New York as we lost all that population, and that is adapt, innovate, um, downsize. And uh, so we take a measure of pride in that as well. This is a um, uh, this uh, um, um, uh, food uh, access injustice and the like. I, I think it's ironically an easier solved problem 
um, again, because as I've learned, and I think uh, people who uh, so will pay attention and attend this conference will also learn, is that the missing ingredient here is access to resources and capital that most other people have. And, uh, and it's time now to have that equal access in East, in East Buffalo. So you're saying the will is there and the resources are there. They just need to be in the same room. Yes, sir. I'm, I, I believe that. All right. Tell me about the conference. Is it, is it open to the public? Could uh, John and Joe and Jane from the community just pop on by and hear these speakers? Or is the purpose really here to be a, a, an open discussion from which can develop the action plan? Well, our, our purpose. I was discussing this uh, the other day with uh, Mark Blue, head of the NAACP, mm-hmm. who's a who's a, uh, a collaborator, and uh, and Thomas Buford at the Buffalo Urban sure. League. Uh, the uh, our, our our principal purpose again is to get the Black East Side Buffalo leaders and citizens who are doing this work in the room to develop these relationships. But I do believe, of course, that everything is t- must be transparent and the like. So um, between now and and uh, and Oct- October twelfth. Uh, the um, we're going to work on that. I have a couple of ideas. Uh, if you recall, in my um, in one of my projects, the the uh, Buffalo conversation, I was, co- I was very fortunate enough to get uh, you know some local um, broadcast journalism outlets, the affiliates of NBC and ABC, to broadcast those live. Mm. Uh, the uh, from I think we did a one at Kessler Center at Canisius, and sure, the like, sure. one at Buffalo State. So one way or another, um, I will find a way for everyone to have access to this great exchange of ideas that's going to take place uh, at this conference. All right. In a general sense, uh, and I'm sure cancer nurses say they do what they do despite the fact they see death. Um, certainly Alex Wright and Alison Dahoney do what they do because they see the, the, the value in what they do. In a general sense, are you optimistic why do you keep doing this, Kevin? <laughs> uh, is is it something where you see the potential for real, tangible progress? David, that's a great question and an interesting one. And sometimes over the course of these past 30 years... You ask I've, yourself the same thing, I've, right? Uh, sure. I've been privileged to do this work. Uh, the um, In my judgment... Um, and I've given it some thought over the years. Uh, the, uh, I'm not that great at uh, self-analysis, but uh, um, in my judgment, I, it, it has always seemed to me that the question is not why I do it, but why other people don't. Um, I was raised at a time when um, a civic obligation and uh, commitment to community, and I was, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, like all the folks, our parents were remarkable parents, and they they, they believed deeply that. Uh, that uh, as an American, and more important as a Buffalonian, not only to your country but to your community, uh, the um, that you had an obligation to to be engaged and to uh, at least attempt to make a modest contribution in exchange, as my mother used to say, for a little bit of grace, and uh, the um, and that that uh, um, uh, very much um, uh, registered with me, and uh, I um, there's no other time. Uh, for instance, these past three months since the uh, since May 14th, um, um, as I've traveled the country, had these discussions, met these magnificent people, read these books. The oh, by the way, we have a wonderful man, Ken Kolb, who just wrote this recent book called Retail and Equity: Reframing the Food Desert Debate. He's going to be there. He's fascinating. Uh, the uh, can you imagine the education I've had? I, I, it's it's uh, it's 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 a it's a way of feeling. Um, both alive and worthwhile, and uh, and I suppose that's uh, that's why. I do. That's enough. Okay, I appreciate your time. Ke- thanks so much, Kevin Gone. And as we get closer to this conference, we will uh, talk a little bit about how 
people can become more involved in it. Kevin, thanks for being with us. That will do it for this edition of Buffalo What's Next. It's our daily discussion on race and education and related issues after the top shooting on May 14th. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUVJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you.